The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing where we are working week in and week out to make sure that you have the information and inspiration you need to start and grow your own real estate investing business. And today, we're going to tell you how you can make $1,000 or more in the next three weeks by taking some simple steps recommended by our guest today, assuming, of course, that you're in the real estate business and that you actually pay your taxes. We're going to talk about year-end ways to reduce your 2019 taxes. And uh, to help me with this discussion, which is actually way beyond my pay grade, I have back with me Mr. Bill Knoll, who is a CPA. He's a tax attorney. He has been working with real estate investors for many, many years and uh, helps them in his day-to-day business with issues around taxes, entities, 1031 exchanges, all of those cool sorts of things. Uh, Bill, appreciate you being on today for this. I mean, really, it's December the, what is today? December the 11th. We're kind of getting getting toward the finish line here in terms of what we can do about our 2019 taxes, but there is still time. That's right, Mina, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, and um, I think that year-end tax planning is where you separate what I call the -the after-the-fact accountants who say, bring me your record and I will do your tax return, and that means after the end of the year, and the true tax professionals who are giving you advice on a proactive basis. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always what you want, is someone who can give you that advice on a proactive basis. Uh, agreed, because, you know, I said that thing at the beginning about making $1,000 the next three weeks, because when normally when people hear taxes, they're like, oh, God, yawn. I don't want to talk about taxes. I want to go make more money. But the reality is there's a lot of folks out there who own rentals or who've done some flips this year who really could do some things in the next three weeks that means $1,000 less on their tax bill when they do. A lot more than $1,000. Yes, in many Um, many cases, yes. Sure. So let me first, I just want to talk about these are generalities that any decent accountant is going to tell someone, and this is true whether you're a real estate investor or maybe you own another business, okay? So these are real basic generalities that I just want people to understand. 
So the first one is the vast majority of investors file as what are called cash basis taxpayers. And that means that they record income when they get it in their hands, and they record expenses when they pay it. Okay? So if you're a cash basis taxpayer, right, what do you want to do? The first thing you want to do is you want to make sure to pay any bills that you can before the end of the year. Okay? So if you have, for instance, an insurance premium that's due January 5th, you're way better off paying it in December. So you get the deduction in 2019 instead of waiting to take the deduction in 2020. That's simple. Okay? Um, Another thing is if you are an investor and you have tenants who you know are not credit risks, meaning they're good to pay you, okay, Um, you know, you can kind of say, hey, look, why don't you pay me two months in January? Don't pay me the December rent, okay? Because then, once again, you know, if you're a cash basis taxpayer, you're not paying tax on that income. Of course, I would never suggest that to someone who had a tenant who might not pay. It's (laughs) only for someone who has a tenant that's going to pay, okay? So, um, but the idea of what I'm going to say is accelerating expenses, in essence, paying expenses early, which is absolutely permissible, okay? And especially, uh, Vina, if you're, you know, if you're going to have to make those payments in later in January or early in February, make them now, because that's going to cut your taxes. Um, so that's the, first of all, simplest thing that I want people to understand is understand your time, okay? Now, before someone calls, I'm just going to hit this one because people always say to me, well, what if someone sends me a check and I don't put it in the bank or I don't cash it? So the answer is, although I don't know how someone finds out, but the answer is if you have a check in your hand, you're supposed to report it as income whether you've deposited it or not. So that's how it works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let me ask you a question about the accelerated uh, expenses thing, because this was this was something that my father was a huge fan of. I remember when I was a kid, he would come to the house on around December 22nd with a hundred gallons of the off-white paint that he painted all his apartments with. <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> and my mom would say, "What are we going to do with that?" And he'd say, "We use a hundred gallons of paint a year." And I don't, you know, I've looked at my taxes this absolutely. year, and we're, we're buying it this year, and we'll paint the apartments with it next year. Uh, exactly. And and some years, and it, you know, it kind of depends. Some years you have a good year, and some years you have a bad year. So in years exactly. in years where you you don't need the tax deduction, you push that over into the next year, right? So that Correct. Yeah, absolutely. That's, but, you know, um, being, you know, we, I guess we skipped past the most important thing. I can't tell you how often um, that I speak to someone and I go, well, how are you doing this year? And it's the end of October, beginning of November. They're like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the only way to do tax planning is to have a reasonable idea of what your income is, you know, through the end of November at this point. So, you know, a critical component to tax planning is, you know, maintaining records. They don't have to be with accounting for precision, but certainly to be able to say, okay, here's what my rental income is. Here's what my income is if I flip the property. Um, here's whatever other income. Maybe you're um, 
already collecting um, money from an IRA. Here's what it is. You know what I mean? And then an accountant can help figure out, you know, the best way to minimize those taxes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here's here's my question about accelerating expenses. How does it work if you're using a credit card? So if you're a cash basis taxpayer, okay, you get to take the deduction when you pay off the credit card. You don't get to take the deduction as you use the credit card, okay? Because mm-hmm. remember, if you're cash basis, the expense occurs when you um, when you pay for it, okay? So, um, you know, now the one thing I'll say is that does not apply to what I'm going to say is kind of a big purchase. For instance, if you were to purchase a work truck, okay, and you finance it, it doesn't apply to that, okay? Um, or if you were to buy a, you know, a significant piece of equipment that you use in maintaining your uh, property, um, those you can treat as, um, you know, uh, being deductible. Um, but really, the reason that you're able to treat them that way isn't necessarily because you paid, you know, cash or didn't pay cash. It's because you're going to get the benefit of depreciation. And there's different types of depreciation. You can get what's called, now we have a thing um, called bonus depreciation. And then there's also another kind of accelerated depreciation called a 179 expense. But in both circumstances, um, so long as you meet the criteria, you get to write off the entire purchase, in essence, now, even though you might use, for instance, a work truck for six or seven years. So um, that's actually, that was going to be kind of the next thing that I, I, I wanted to talk about is the opportunity. If you have like a big year with a lot of income and you need some physical assets, for your business, okay? I, I want to make sure people understand these are business assets being purchased and not just, you know, buying something for a family member to drive around in for fun or because they got to get back and forth to school. But this is a business asset um, that you basically get to take the write-off um, under either Section 179 or as bonus depreciation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Okay. I want to... Give out our contact information to listeners because the the thing about, you know, talking about taxes and tax deductions and all that sort of thing is that folks have particular situations that they're in. And while I know you cannot, you cannot like advise them as if you were their CPA sitting across from them and understanding their entire situation, I uh, still want to find out what sort of things folks are curious about. And guys, this is the day if you've got uh, tax questions, this is the day to ask them because I've actually got somebody here on the phone who knows how to answer them. Our phone number here in the studio with any of your questions is 877-772-9658, 877-772-9658. You can also send your questions to askvina at gmail.com and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and more importantly, my guest today is Bill Knoll, who is a CPA, tax attorney, very, very experienced with the issues and 
problems and solutions for real estate investors of all stripes. And we're talking about uh, way, things that you can do over the next couple of weeks. I know the holidays are coming, but n- none of these things are going to take you a ton of time that will cut your tax bill in 20- for 2019 in 2020. Because on most issues, you wait until after the first of the year and you can't go back and fix them. There's there's a couple of things the IRS lets you do after the first of the year, like make some contributions to tax-free and tax-deferred plans. But uh, for the most part, if you don't get it done by December 31st, you are just out of luck. So, uh, Bill, moving expenses into this year, uh, moving income where it seems reasonable to do so into next year were your first two suggestions. Uh, what, what else is what else is fairly easy and accessible to most people that they could just go ahead and do it? So, um, the next thing that I think is important if if someone's meeting with an accountant is to understand. If I can't go into great detail on this, but there's lots of credits that exist, and there are multiple types of deductions which exist, which phase out as your income gets higher. And so you can't um, change a phase out, it, just as an example. And I just, just to give you a, an example of an, uh, something like this, is there's a credit for people who pay for their kids to go to college, Okay. The American Opportunity Credit, all right? And um, it, it basically, it generates um, up to $2,500 of a tax credit, which means you pay $2,500 less in tax, which is great. So if you're paying for a kid to go to college. But the thing is, it phases out, okay? So if you are married and you're filing together jointly, it, it starts to be reduced with income of 160000 and it disappears, the credit disappears in its entirety once, if you're married filing joint, you have an $180,000. So, of course, you can't change those phase out the thresholds. However, if, for instance, you were doing a tax planning meeting and it looked like you were at $180,000, okay, then that would be the time to decide, hey, can I put money into a SEP? And that doesn't have to be done by the end of the year, as you already alluded to. It can be done when you file a return. Um, if maybe you have a spouse who's employed and has a 401k, can I do a salary deferral? And in essence, create a way to reduce your income so that you don't miss out as a result of a phase-out. And as I said, that's just one example because there's dozens of credits and deductions which can benefit you but which do phase out. And so when you have a meeting with an accountant, they can look at that and, you know, if you're close, that's where you can sort of, um, you know, come up with a strategy that's going to give you the ability to get that governmental advantage uh, understanding proactively how to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> let me just let me just step back and say something that I I think I say pretty much every time I talk to a tax type person here on real life real estate, and that is, 
that sort of thing is the reason that it's super important that if if you if you get into real estate in any serious way <laughs> that you have a tax person who is a specialist because they they know things that your your typical CPA just does not know about uh, available credits available programs available depreciation and some of the advice i hear people getting who are in the real estate business who are who they're still going to their same accountant that they hired in college right when they were working at you know <laughs> McDonald's and <laughs> had a pretty simple tax return is it's like even i know what's wrong you know they they they're told they can't take deductions that even i know they can take they're told they can't open iras that even i know they can open and you know we tend to we tend to trust our professionals when they've been around us especially for a long time but it is so important if you're in real estate to have somebody who more or less specializes uh in working with real estate investors yeah i'll reiterate that uh, Bina, because Unfortunately, the vast, vast majority of accountants say taxes are taxes. And when you do accounting, the debits always equal the credits. And that's accurate. The debits do always equal the credits. But here's the thing. It takes many hundreds of hours to understand the nuances of the tax code, which benefit real estate investors. And so what I explain to people is that if you have what I'm going to say is a general tax practice with an ordinary cross-section of the population, from a business standpoint, it almost makes no sense to spend hundreds of hours learning about these nuances of the real estate tax law because they're only ever going to have one or two clients who might dabble a little in real estate. Um, unfortunately, a lot of accounts will say, well, sure, I can do it, but the reality is they have not devoted the necessary time to understand, again, these very valuable strategies which exist to real estate investors and really don't exist in any other asset class. And so my suggestion when you discuss working with an accountant is, let me know what percentage of your clients are real estate investors. And if the answer isn't more than 10%, you know, go down the road. That person... (laughs) is not going to have sufficient knowledge to work with a serious investor. Yes, very true. Now, we're starting to get some questions in uh, from listeners, uh, primarily via email here at askvina at gmail.com. Although, again, listeners, let me remind you that you can, in fact, uh, give us a call, too, if you think your question needs some explanation. The number is 877-772-9658. Uh, here is a question from Roger in Portland. He says, can you please have dre- a bill address deduction for education travel? My understanding is that when traveling outside of the United States for education, most of the travel is not deductible, but every seminar I see says, come to the Bahamas tax-free. What's the truth of this? <laughs> the truth is generally that travel outside of the continental United States is not permitted to be an ordinary business deduction, okay? And the people promoting right off your trip are people who are honestly taking advantage of people um, who aren't very well um, educated because the tax code is clear that travel outside the continental United States um, is generally not deductible. Okay. 
Yes, and I, I see those all the time, too, and I always kind of say, you might want to do you know, um, Vina, because I, I can assure you someone else is going to say, I've been doing that for years, and nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's called playing the audit lottery. <laughs> doesn't mean that they're allowed to take the deduction. What it means is they've never got caught taking the deduction. <laughs> True story. Okay, here's a question from Teal in Columbus. She says, is there a rule that says income earned on a property in one state has to be claimed in that same state? I have a rental property in an LLC in a state that has no state income tax. I have another one in a state that does have state income tax. Can I put both properties in the same LLC in the state with no state income tax, thereby paying federal income tax on all income but avoiding the state income tax? The answer to that is no. You have to report the income earned on a rental property in the state where it's located. So in, in this example... The person has one um, rental that's in a state with no tax. It might be Florida, it might be uh, Tennessee, okay? Um, and so whatever rental income that that person has in, in that state is not subject to state income tax in that state, okay? So that's part one, okay? Now, the second rental that's located in a state with an income tax, yes, she would need to file a tax return and pay state income tax on the income earned from the rental in that particular state. Now, here's here's the worst of it, Vina, is um, if she's got a rental that theoretically is in uh, potentially Tennessee or Florida, which is not subject to tax, but she's an Ohio resident, Ohio is going to want a piece of that income because she's an Ohio resident subject to Ohio taxes. So, you know, the way the states generally work is you don't pay tax on a rental property twice, but generally what happens is, you know, you pay tax in the state where the rental's located, and then your home state gives you what's called a credit for that tax. So you don't end up paying for it twice. But usually what happens is where you have rental income in a state, like I said, like Tennessee or Florida, where there's no um, rental, there's no income tax in that state, then Ohio is going to say, well, you're not getting a credit because you didn't pay any income tax in that state. Therefore, you pay Ohio income tax. So the answer to the lady's question is you're going to pay state tax on all your income. <laughs> it's just a question of which state. It's the it's the opposite of what you were hoping, Teal. <laughs> it's not, I'm sorry. It's not that you can completely avoid state income tax. It's that you're even going to pay state income tax on the stuff without the state income tax. <laughs> so, That's so, right. Yeah, sometimes the right answer oh, is not oh, the wait, answer we were hoping. Tina, for. I do want to answer one thing, though. If Teal moved to Tennessee or Florida, then she wouldn't have to pay income tax You know, on the, in that place. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a state that has an income tax, you're going to pay it on all the income you got. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. And thank you for your question, Teal. Uh, we're going to take some more questions after we take a quick break. Again, the number here in the studio is 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to Bill Knoll, who you, you, you guys heard him back in maybe July on the show. And I said, 
wow, we didn't have enough time to discuss everything. And so we're going to have to have you back. And this is the have you back because this is the time of year when unfortunately, in the in addition to the decorating and the Christmas shopping, it is also time to think about how do I minimize my taxes before the beginning of the year rolls around and it is too late to do anything to minimize my taxes. Okay, Bill, I don't know if this is a question you want to tackle. I'm not sure if this is this is something that could be summarized quickly or not, but it came from a listener in Louisville, so I'm going to ask it anyway. This is from Tom. He says, can you please explain cost segregation and how it benefits real estate investors? I can do that. Um, so uh, cost segregation is a method where when you have a... Uh, piece of real estate, and in my example, I'm just going to say it's a residential rental, and I'm going to say it's a single-family home, okay? Um, There is a way to allocate the cost, okay, and then take different types of depreciation on those allocated costs. So um, the first thing is people have to understand when you have um, real estate that whatever amount you allocate towards land is not depreciable because land doesn't wear out, okay? Um, The most valuable portion of a rental, uh, a residential real estate rental is what's called the personal property, which um, can be depreciated over five years, but under the new tax law can actually be written off all in the current year as bonus depreciation. So that can be a huge deduction. Uh, The next is what's called uh, 15-year property. It's external land improvements. And land improvements are things like your driveway, um, your sidewalks, your landscaping, your exterior lighting, things of that nature. That gets depreciated over 15 years, okay? And that is also eligible for bonus depreciation, so in theory, you can write it all off in the first year. You have a property uh, in place. The remaining um, what are called uh, components or um, subunits, okay, are um, HVAC, plumbing, electrical, building, frame, and then windows and doors. All of those things are written off over 27 and a half years when you have a residential rental. But the reason that you want to break those things up is that if you were, for instance, to replace windows in the future, okay, then um, by breaking it up, you now have a value for your windows and your doors. And, you know, you put new windows in, you you have to depreciate them over 27 and a half years, but there's a remaining value to the windows that you've thrown out. And you get to take a deduction for that. So... The answer is cost uh, segregation is an incredibly valuable tool that anyone investing in real estate needs to understand. Mm-hmm. And there's and there's oh, by the way, uh, I'm sorry. Well, I I I I, I, st- I sort of say there's a, a you probably have like a thousand landlords super excited right now, and I I, I want to add there there are some rules around that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 I'm not, I, I was just giving the concept. Right, I right. mean, you can't allocate 
80 percent of your purchase price to personal property and take bonus depreciation right no no there's a lot of rules i don't know bill i have Um, bought houses that i'm pretty sure 80 percent of the value was in the furnace and the windows and the (laughs) but but that's not personal property that's you know you know so that's that's my point Your, your personal property is things like your cabinetry and your appliances and you know um drapery if you have drapes and blinds it's stuff like that um you know so you know i think you know much more than 15 percent allocated to personal property starting to push the envelope pretty heavy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so i'm sorry you had started to say something as well could i could i interrupt you because there's one thing that i'd really like to touch on is a tax planning issue yes that i don't know that people understand okay okay Mm -hmm. um and that is um, under the new tax law that if you are at a 22% tax rate or lower, your capital gains rate, if you were to sell something and have a capital gain, is zero. Okay? Mm-hmm. Meaning you don't pay tax at all. And it's actually relatively a significant amount of money for, for a married couple filing jointly in um, – 2019, you could have income up to $102,950, and to the degree you have capital gains in that mix, you pay zero capital gains tax on that. Hmm. So uh, I'm bringing this up because I would suspect it's not unusual that you might have someone who owns a business, and they also are real estate investors. And sometimes when you own a business, you can have a bad year. And it might not even necessarily be that you're you know, you're short cash. I had a client a few years back that um, had never really tracked his inventory like he should have. And when we finally figured out what his inventory was, it was overstated by $200,000. And so we were able to, in essence, write off the inventory by $200,000 which created a tax loss on the business of $100,000. So the reason I'm bringing this up is you don't want to just look in a vacuum at how much did you make on your rental portfolio or on your flips. You have to look at your entire picture because potentially, now do I think someone's going to go out and sell a property in the next three weeks? Probably not. But really, I just wanted to bring up that concept because if someone owned some um, stock, for instance, that had a value that was very appreciated and they sold the stock, they pay no tax on it, you know. Um, or, you know, if you know, this is something to be aware of. What I'm going to say is more like if someone's having a like a tight year from an income standpoint in July or August. Now maybe you do think about selling a place that was probably, maybe you've been thinking about getting rid of it anywhere. Maybe it was a bit of a marginal investment, but you didn't want to take that tax hit. So now if you can figure out, okay, great, you know, this place is going to, it's going to generate a $20,000 gain. I'm not going to make more than $80,000 this year. You know, I'm going to sell this thing tax-free. It's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, zero zero taxes is always my favorite my favorite kind of taxes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, you always can do that with a ten thirty one exchange, so I don't really consider that to be year end tax planning. Okay. But that's always another way. <laughs> yeah. Um 
What, one last thing with regard to capital gains, okay? Um, under the new tax law, there is a type of investment called a qualified opportunity fund. And what that allows someone to do, and this is for any capital gain, it's not like a 1031 exchange where it's only real estate, but for any capital gain that someone might have, to the degree that they reinvest that gain in a qualified opportunity fund, they don't pay tax on that gain for five years. And when they do have to pay tax, and they you do have to pay tax, at that point it's reduced, okay? But the big benefit of a qualified opportunity fund is this second investment that you make. If you hold that investment for 10 years, you never pay tax on the second investment at all. So um, it's it's a kind of complicated thing, but I think it's something that your listeners should at least be a little bit aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not suggesting this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and everyone should be looking at this. But what I am saying is that if someone has capital gains, it's worth learning about. Even if you don't do it for 2019, learn about it, and then maybe you consider it in 2020. Yes, agreed. And in fact, there is a whole show um, back in the archives at realliferealestate.com for anybody who wants to go and just listen to some uh, prior programs uh, from the beginning of the year talking about that. Because, man, it took an hour. It took an hour oh, to yeah. talk about yeah. <laughs> to yeah. talk about the because I mean, there's some weird things in there like the property can never cannot have been used as a rental property in the past and or has to have been abandoned for a certain number of years. So when you start when you start digging down into it, you start to see why all of these funds who do that part of the work are right. popping up and becoming popular because then you can just put your money with them and they can figure out. <laughs> yes, and there are a lot of pieces to keep track of it to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think the fund potentially is, is the easier way to approach it. Mm-hmm. All right, we need to take one more quick break, and then we're going to get the, the listener questions are coming in almost faster than we are answering them. So let's uh, invite listeners one more time. If you have a tax question about uh, anything you want to know about saving some taxes in 2019, uh, 877-772-9658 or at gmail.com. Program support is made possible by Playhouse in the Park. Live piano music and laugh out loud comedy combine in two pianos, four hands at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. This riotous show tells the story of Richard and Ted and their lifelong pursuit of becoming concert pianist superstars. Featuring legendary music from Beethoven to Billy Joel, two performers tickle the ivories and your funny bone in this musical comedy. November 9th to January 5th. Sponsored by the Carol Ann and Ralph V. Hale Jr. U.S. Bank Foundation. For tickets, visit cincyplay.com or call 421-3888. Checking in traffic right now, a disabled vehicle on 75 northbound at Hopple. We still have the accident on southbound 471 on the Daniel Carter Beard Bridge heading into Kentucky. 275 eastbound at Montgomery, an accident. Loveland-Miamiville Road is still shut down between Branch Hill, Guinea, and Price. We still have an accident 71 northbound at Fields Ertle and on 74 westbound near the Miami Town exit, an accident as well. Your forecast tonight, increasing cloudiness, a low of 18. Tomorrow, some clouds and a high of 45 and maybe a little rain Friday afternoon and a high of 45 degrees. We'll have the full forecast along with the news of the day coming up at the top of the hour on Local 12 News. 
Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is Bill Knoll. We got all kinds of questions coming in that are much better than the ones I had for you, Bill. <laughs> all my questions were like, so should we get an HSA before the end of the year? But um, here's one from Herbert, uh, Hubert, excuse me, from Columbus. He says, how do you decide briefly whether you're better taking the long-term capital gain or 1031 exchange or an opportunity to zone deal? So I think what he's what he's saying is if yeah. I had the choice of any of the three, how would I make the decision? I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. There's a lot of moving parts. The one thing that I would point out is that if you do a 1031 exchange, and you roll all the proceeds of the current sale into a new purchase, um, there is no requirement to pay taxes at any particular point in the future. On the other hand, with, with regard to a qualified opportunity fund, five years from now, you have to pay uh, 85% of the tax that would be due this year. So... But but you're only rolling over the gain. You're not rolling over the wholesale amount. So there's a lot of pieces. Um, but but the thing that I would point out is there is no requirement to pay taxes if you do a 1031 exchange until you would sell the next property that you acquire. Mm-hmm. If ever, I mean, you could die exactly. owning that property. Correct. <laughs> yes. And then it becomes someone else's problem <laughs> to, exactly. to untangle what happens in an estate property that was the subject of a real basement property in a 1031 exchange. Um, so we do have one or two more questions here, but but Bill, I did not want to uh, ignore the question of is there is there anything on the horizon that we need to be cognizant of or worried about in terms of changes that might come, are going to come uh, over the course of the next 12 months or so? I have not heard of any significant changes whatsoever. The only significant change that was discussed early this year and was never pursued had to do with potentially changing some of the rules related to um, retirement plans um, they were, you know, there were going to be some potential more, more restrictions on Roth IRAs as an example. But, um, with regard to being a real estate investor and, you know, the strategies that you utilize to grow your wealth, um, and defer taxes as a real estate investor, I'm aware of no changes whatsoever. Okay. All right, then I will go back to listener questions. Here is one from Frederick, and I hope, I'm hoping you will understand what he means because it, it's a little over my head. He says, how do you audit proof the, your change in status to real estate professional, i.e. material participation? Okay, so the first thing is this. That's actually two concepts. They're interrelated, but they're separate, okay? Material participation has to do with, you know, whether you are uh, permitted to take at least what I'm going to say is some amount of loss on your rental real estate. 
And there's four different tests on whether or not you materially participate. What I'm going to tell you and your listeners is the vast majority of people who are actively investing in real estate will meet one of those four tests. So I would suspect nearly everyone would meet the material participation test. The second question is that of being a real estate professional. And for your listeners, a real estate professional gives a, uh, a couple or an individual the right, in essence, to recognize all rental losses and net them against any other income earned, including um, what's called non-passive income, portfolio income, any income, W-2 income. And it's a great uh, opportunity for someone who can be a real estate professional. So, you know, being a materially participating in real estate professional are two different matters. The question it sounds like Frederick's asking is, how do you avoid scrutiny by the IRS when you first assert that you're a real estate professional? And the answer is, there's really, I mean, when you file as a real estate professional, there's there's basically a box where you fill in information. The second page of the Schedule E at the bottom says reconciliation for real estate professionals. And if you have a number in there, you're a real estate professional. And um, I have many, 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 many clients who are real estate professionals. And in and of itself, um, you know, saying you're a real estate professional does not heighten the chance of being audited. The one thing I'll point out to your um, listeners is that there are pretty stringent requirements for meeting that test, and it really requires the people um, asserting being a real estate professional that they maintain a log of their time during the year. Mm -hmm. And so what I say to Frederick is, I'm not very worried about you being audited, but if you are audited, you need to have a log of that. A log. So that's what it comes down to, a log. A written log that establishes that you meet, there are two separate tests that you meet the test. Okay. And and what sort of activities can we and can we not count in terms of the hours oh, we speak? Because I, um, I know people who, who, who attend enough real estate meetings over the course of the year to say I've spent 750 hours on real estate, but I have a feeling that doesn't count. Well, first of all... Um, the test is actually two parts. Part one is at least 750 hours, 750 and a half or 751. Okay, so that's, that's, and, and this is the big and, and you must demonstrate you devote more time to your real estate investing activities than you do any other job. Hmm. So what that means is if you have, the way I explain to someone is if, if you're a teacher, right, and you work at you. You have to be at your school seventeen hundred hours a year as a teacher. Then, in order to be a real estate professional, you'd have to establish that you did real estate and manage your real estate for seventeen hundred and one hours per year. So you have to do more time in real estate. Um, so, but to answer your question, what does it take? It is managing property, developing property. Um, you know, in being a real estate agent. So it's it's what I would think of as the typical things that real estate investors do. It's looking at properties that you're going to flip. I mean, it's supervising the general contractor on a flip. So 
talking to you know, sellers, it's pretty much talking, any real okay. estate activity. Oh yeah, negotiating with sellers. You know, anything related to it. Let me say what it's not, okay? Because this is the, this is the, where people make mistakes. Here's what it's not. Mortgage broker is not being involved in real estate. Although they'll say they're in real estate, it doesn't count as a real estate profession, okay? Another thing that doesn't count is there are a lot of people that kind of help others who have been ex, uh, experienced investors who, like, mentor others and get paid for that. And um, that time, teaching people about real estate investing doesn't count, okay? So it has to be directly related to either, in essence, managing property, owning property, flipping property, okay? Those are, those are the prime, or being a real estate agent. That, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. That's and a high bar. Degree, you get some education. I think that that counts. That's part of being in the business. Mm-hmm. But... I don't think I would say you should, someone says, I did 300 hours of education towards my 750. I mean, that's going a little crazy. Uh, oh, and just got, you said, you said being a mortgage broker doesn't count. So immediately what pops up on my email, what if I am, what if I'm not a mortgage broker? What if I am making or buying real estate loans myself? We've got a note buyer who you just panicked because they're afraid they might not be open. I don't believe a note buyer qualifies to be a real estate professional Uh, as a note buyer, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if you buy the note and then you foreclose and now you own the real estate, to the degree that you're managing real estate that you've taken over through foreclosure, that time would count. But I don't think, I mean, buying a note is not a real estate investment. Basically, you're collecting interest. Mm -hmm. So... I understand that there's collateral behind it, which is real estate, but note buying in and of itself, I don't think would meet the test for being a real estate professional. Mm. Yep. Sorry, note buyers. I think, I think, I, I think I did not realize that the bar was as high as you just said. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who, you know, truly do work a lot in real estate who would not qualify to be real estate professionals because they also work a lot in something else. Right. And that's a, so you got to have more time. Or the other thing is, if, if, if you've got a non working spouse or a spouse that works part time, you know, you can get, in essence, have them be the real estate professional. In fact, that's actually like the real sweet spot. I have um, many clients who one spouse is high earning in some kind of professional capacity, and the other spouse, um, kind of takes care of the real estate and probably takes care of the home front too, mm-hmm. you know, and in that circumstance, then, you know, the They're person the who's managing the real estate only has to establish 751 hours. So that's the easy way to do it. And my old buddy who I started doing this with, Al Ayala, some of your people might have heard of him. My old buddy used to have a slide that says that if you can't be a real estate professional, Marry someone who can. I always thought that was a great joke. <laughs> Good advice. And Bill, uh, believe it or not, we are out of time again. I really appreciate you taking time out of your holiday season to help us understand how to save some money over the next few weeks. And look forward to having you back again as soon as we can. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.